And now, a movie that may actually improve your vocabulary. I think your advice is a bit too specific. Uh, the references to penises and vaginas should be toned down just a smidge. So I should use alternative terms like dick, wang, purple bulb, midget fireman's helmet, love sausage, and bearded clam? A movie that will teach you things you never knew about the opposite sex. Every man has a tiny vagina, and every woman has a tiny penis. Very, very tiny, but it's there. I don't think so. A movie that proves you're not the only schizoid maniac on your block. The buses have been categorized as to particular condition and ailment. Premature ejaculators, non-ejaculators, and retrograde ejaculators on board, please. Nymphomaniacs. Don't let me out of your sight. A movie that will help you find yourself. I'm not sick. I just need space. I finally found a place I fit in as well as I do the nut house. Beverly Hills. So if it's been years, months, days, minutes, or seconds since you've really laughed, we urge you to seek professional help. Dan Aykroyd. But I don't want to escape with you. I hate you. Walter Matthau. I can accept that. Charles Grodin. You had sex with one of your face. Donna Dixon. The Couch Trip. Well, he said, balls, asshole, son of a bitch, and finally fuck. We're okay on balls, we're iffy on son of a bitch, and even asshole is somewhat anatomically potentially forgivable. There's no getting around fuck. Coming soon to a theater you can deal with. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dan Aykroyd Podcast. I'm your host, Scott White. I've been gone for a little while, up here in Michigan, visiting my dad, visiting some friends, but I'm back. And what am I looking at in this episode? The Couch Trip from 1988, starring Dan Aykroyd, Charles Grodin, Donna Dixon, and Walter Matthau. As I said, this movie came out in 1988, and I remember, I vaguely remember seeing this movie in the theaters. So this was probably one of the first rated R movies that I ever saw because uh, I would well, I would have been 19 in uh, 1988, showing my age. And uh, yeah, so I, I vaguely remember, I, I only remember a couple of things in re-watching it. Most of it was new to me, but there was a couple of scenes that I do remember. Let's just get into the review. It's from Orion, <laughs> so that's not a good start. And the opening credits are played over these old radio and television programs talking about relationships. They were uh, psychologists that were on early radio and early television, but they end with Charles Grodin. So those were all real. Uh, there was Dr. Joyce Brothers. She was in one of them. But those were all real television shows and real radio shows of the time. But the montage ends with Charles Grodin's character, who is a psychologist. And he talks about his new book and how all men have a vagina and all women have a penis. Then we cut to a mental facility in Chicago, Illinois. Once again, we have the Chicago connection with Dan Aykroyd. It's in quite a few of his films, and it starts off with this one. And we're panning down the hallway, and we hear two people having sex, and it's Dan Aykroyd and Victoria Jackson. Victoria Jackson plays a secretary. This scene sort of reminded me of the scene from The Longest Yard where Burt Reynolds was having sex with Bernadette Peters, who was a secretary in a prison. So there was a couple of parallels 
uh, in this scene and that scene from these two movies. They're having sex and an alarm goes off. And Dan Aykroyd says, I can't concentrate with all this noise going on. And Victoria Jackson rolls her eyes and says, she's just going to have affairs with the doctors and security from now on and no longer the patients. So that means that this woman who's been working here has been having, definitely having an affair with Dan Aykroyd, who is a patient, and probably having affairs with other patients. <laughs> well, a man has crawled off on a ledge. And that's why the alarms are going off. And as this man is out on a ledge, we see this other man pop his head out and start talking to him. And obviously, this is one of the doctors at the uh, facility. And you can tell right away that he is a quack doctor because he just keeps repeating, I hear what you say. Man, I'm going to jump. Okay, I hear what you say. He's one of these doctors. He's one of, They're making fun of doctors that... Uh, just uh, use cycle babble to pass themselves off as smart. That's the gist of this character. He's not very smart, but he tries to sound smart around people. And when he's around people who are smarter than him, he sounds a lot dumber. And this actor who plays the doctor, I couldn't, his name is David Clennon. C-L-E-N-N-O-N. David Clennon. And for this whole movie... I couldn't place him until the very end when I realized he was the stone guy in The Thing. He was one of the guys in The Thing, 1982, Kurt Russell, John Carpenter. You gotta be fucking kidding. So he was in one of the greatest movies of all time, and he was in this movie. But I'm not going to tip my hat too soon. Well, the doctor is trying to talk this patient off the ledge, and you can tell that this patient has no respect for this doctor. Then all of a sudden, Dan Aykroyd pops his head out, and he starts talking to the patient. He knows them. They're personal. They're buddies. He calls them by name. And then Dan Aykroyd, and this tells you that Dan Aykroyd is really running this place. He tells the doctor to let him go out and talk to this patient. So a patient has told a doctor to let another patient go out and talk to a patient. This is completely unbelievable. In no, in no facility in the world at any time would a licensed doctor tell a patient to go out on a... Maybe, maybe if they were friends. Maybe if they were friends, it's like... Talk to him. Stick your head out. But none, no doctor in their right mind would let another patient crawl out on the ledge with a patient who's threatening to jump. And then he closes the window so the doctor can't even hear what they're saying. And Dan Aykroyd crawls out, and they're obviously buddies, as I've said, because Dan Aykroyd tells him not to jump. This is why he tells him not to jump. So, what's the thinking here, Lopez? I'm thinking I can fly. And if not, who gives a shit? Yeah? And what about our dreams, man? The dream of you and me, playing for the Cubs in the World Series? You're pitching, I'm catching, bases are jammed in the ninth. I call for the spitter. 
You hark up an ungodly goober, fire it up. The bottom drops out of the pitch, Mattingly strikes out. And when the dust clears, man, it's you and me, sitting around at Hef's in the grotto with a bunch of ladies named Miss February. No way, man. And why not? Because even in a dream, the Cubs can't win a World Series. That's right. And it almost took, it took them, I don't know, 88, it took them almost, it took them 30 more years after that to win a pennant. Dan Aykroyd convinces him to go back in. And he convinces, so this guy goes back in and Dan Aykroyd's out on the ledge and he looks down and he sees that the fire department is there with one of those nets to catch jumpers. And Dan Aykroyd says, well, people came here for a show and he does a swan dive into the net. And then now we cut to Beverly Hills. We, we see Charles, well, we don't know, we don't know at the time, but we're at Charles uh, Grodin's house. And Charles Grodin is a famous uh, psychologist living in Beverly Hills who's sort of having a mental breakdown. And we see his wife, played by Mary Gross. So Mary Gross and Victoria Jackson are both in this movie, and they were both cast members of Saturday Night Live. Mary Gross was a cast member in the early 80s, and I believe Victoria Jackson was actually on Saturday Night Live while she was filming this movie. Well, Mary is talking to Charles Grodin, and she tells him he's having a breakdown, and he says, I'm not having a breakdown. This is just to set up the... This scene is to set up the mental stability of Charles Grodin, which is going to come into play later in the movie. Well, Mary Gross leaves, and we see Charles Grodin walk to a medicine cabinet and just pour a bunch of pills into his hand. And then we cut. I thought that was nice. I thought that was a nice scene. We didn't see him take the pills. We don't know what happened. It was a little ambivalent. I always like when something is a little ambivalent, when the when they give the audience something to think about instead of just shoving it down their throat. And we come back. Dan Aykroyd is taken to the doctor after he has jumped into the net. He talks to the, the doctor that allowed him to go out on the ledge. And it turns out that Dan Aykroyd is a con man. He's a con man who hates authority. And he convinced the warden, he was supposed to be in jail, but he convinced the warden that he was crazy and they sent him to this mental facility. The doctor, even though he's a boob, and I guess maybe because the doctor is sort of a grifter as well, not a real doctor, he can tell, it's like, you know, grifters and con men can tell another grifter, you can't, uh, you can't, you can't con a con, you can't con a con. So even though this doctor is terrible at his job, he can recognize another con man. And he's holding that against Dan Aykroyd. He says, if you try, if you cause any more trouble, I'm going to sign this waiver and I'm going to send you right back to prison. We cut back and we see uh, Charles Grodin and Mary Gross. They're, they're married. And his lawyer slash agent and they're in this really elegant dining room. And Charles Grodin explaining that he accidentally took all those pills. He wasn't trying to kill himself. He just needs a little time. So Charles Grodin really is having a mental breakdown at this time. But he refuses to admit it. And he wants to take a vacation. And he wants to be replaced. But he doesn't want to be replaced with somebody who's too competent. He just wants to be replaced with somebody 
who's just smart enough to get by until he recovers. And the funny part of the scene is he's wheeled out of this very, very elegant dining room into the hospital. So uh, the joke is in Beverly Hills, even the hospitals have five-star restaurants. And that was a nice sight gag. That made me chuckle. And they push him to the room and he's like, just find me somebody who's incompetent. That's basically what he wants. We cut back to the sanitarium where Dan Aykroyd is and his buddy who's on the ledge. They're talking and the orderlies come up and start harassing. I've never seen a movie set... Well, I take that back. But in most movies that are set in a mental institution, the orderlies are just dicks. They just treat the patients horribly. And this is just another stereotypical character. These big, dumb orderlies who just treat the patients like crap. I was going to say in all movies, but there is one. Um, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Dream Warriors. Lawrence Fishburne. He actually plays a caring orderly in a mental institution. And you don't see a lot of that in movies at all. It's just basically a blanket stereotype that if you work in a mental institution, you're just a horrible person. And it's here too. Well, Dan Aykroyd doesn't like him treating his friends like uh, dirt. And uh, the orderly is holding a big tray of pills and Dan Aykroyd just jumps up and kicks the pills out of his hand and starts dancing on him and starts crushing him under his feet. And they grab him and they put him in a straitjacket. And once again, he is back in front of the doctor. We cut back to the lawyer's office, Charles Grodin's lawyer's office, and we see that his lawyer and his wife are having an affair. And they're just about to have sex on the desk when the lawyer's assistant walks in, played by Airy Gross. No relation to Mary Gross, but Airy Gross is in this movie. And you may know him. He was in one of the most racist movies of all time, Soul Man. That's what I remember him from. He was in a lot of movies in the 80s, but that's what I remember him from. Yes, if you don't know Soul Man, I wouldn't suggest seeing it. Just look it up and just read the synopsis and you'll see that it was just a horrible idea of a movie. But it was the 80s. They decide to choose the doctor at Dan Aykroyd's facility to replace Charles Grodin. They feel he is the best candidate. He graduated with a C plus. He's into psychobabble. He's not, he's not good enough to cure anybody, but he's not bad enough to raise any red flags. And now we cut back to the office, and the doctor is in the office with Dan Aykroyd, and Dan Aykroyd is still in a straitjacket. And he says, you know what? I'm not going to send you to prison I'm going to send you to this place that is doing experiments, human experiments, and they need crazy, whacked-out people, and I'm going to send them to you. Right before he dismisses Dan Aykroyd, he gets a call, and he has to leave. So Dan Aykroyd is in a straitjacket, alone in the doctor's office, and the phone rings, and he answers it with his foot, puts it on speakerphone, and he starts talking to the lawyer, Charles Grodin's lawyer, and he pretends to be the doctor. So he's pretending to be the doctor that they're after. And he starts saying, well, hello, you can call me Larry. 
what do you want? They're like, we want you to come to California. And basically, Dan Aykroyd cons them into thinking that he's the doctor. And Dan Aykroyd senses that he can make a lot of money with this. And so he goes on with the con and he says, I'll be there. And the lawyer says, we're going to leave a ticket for you at the airport. First class, we'll see you tomorrow. So Dan Aykroyd has decided that he is going to blow this institution and become a psychologist in Beverly Hills, California. He hangs up the phone. He runs out to Victoria Jackson, who's in the lobby, the secretary. She takes off his straitjacket, and she has an, an ambulance pager. And Dan Aykroyd is an electronics wizard, and he, he plays around with this pager, and he's able to manipulate the, the phones. So he's able to he's able to go and have a phone ring and he's able to use this pager to talk as if he's on the other end of the phone i really don't know how he could do something like that in such a short period of time but he does and victoria jackson puts him back in the straitjacket and here's a weird part okay she puts him back in the straitjacket and she shoves the pager in the front of the straight jacket and she shoves a hanger in the back of the straight jacket obviously this is so dan Aykroyd can use it to get out later but the doctor comes back he says i'm done with you and the next scene is dan Aykroyd lying in bed and he has the ambulance pager with him how did he get out of the straight jacket why is he back in bed? If somebody took him out of the straitjacket, they would have found the hanger and the pager. They would have known something is up. If he would have taken it off himself, where's the straight? It's just an odd cut. In this. We have all this setup with Victoria Jackson giving him all the stuff he needs to escape the straitjacket, and we don't see him escape the straitjacket. The next scene, he boom, he's just out of it. I don't know. It just bothered me. As I said, the next scene, he's just lying in bed, and he... And he takes the ambulance pager and he makes the phone ring at the front desk and he sends the two orderlies who are guarding the wing. He sends them away. Then he calls security. Well, you know what? This is what he does with the, with the ambulance pager from right here. Dr. Baird, would you and Phil please come to my office? Yes, sir, right away. I've been much too harsh on you for these minor infractions. Come down to my office immediately. Yes, yeah, this rocker. Security. Chuck, Jack Watkins here. What the hell's going on down there? Baird's up with the goddamn catatonics and the alarm bells are going off. I don't get any signal down here. They're all turned off. No, they ain't. They're ringing. I can hear them. And Baird's having a hot dip shit bit. Nobody's flashing. Don't tell me goddamn nothing. Them alarm bells are ringing. Now get to that main terminal and turn off the main switch right now. Uh, yes, sir. And with the alarm off, he's able to open up the window and walk right out of the sanitarium. Uh, one thing I forgot to say is when Victoria Jackson was putting him back in his straitjacket, he told her to leave her car out front with the keys in it. And that's what he does. He walks right out of the building into her car and drives right to the airport. Now, mind you, he's still in his prison garb. 
so he starts stealing clothing once he reaches the airport. He steals this guy's jacket. He steals this woman's scarf just to sort of cover up the fact that he is wearing a prison attire or insane person attire. And here's another thing. If he is so smart, obviously he has Victoria Jackson wrapped around his finger. Here's what you do. Park your car out front. Get me a change of clothing. Put it in the trunk. That way, when he gets to the airport, he's able to change and he won't be in his prison garb. And he'll be less conspicuous. He doesn't do that. He doesn't do that to, quote unquote, the joke of stealing everything. But he gets to the airport, he steals his clothes, and he says there's... And this was 1988, way before 9-11. And he could just say, you know what, I'm so-and-so, I have no ID, I have no bags, give me that ticket, I'm flying to California. And he was able to do it. And he lands in California, and Donna Dixon is standing there with one of those signs. And Dan Aykroyd tells her that I'm the guy you're looking for. She doesn't believe him because she looks, you know, like a bum. But he finally convinces her that he's the doctor that they are waiting for. She takes him out into the car that's waiting. And now we first get to see Walter Matthau. And now I want to say, Walter Matthau is the best part of this movie. He just does a great job as, and he's another, this is a movie where there really are no good guys. You want to think that Dan Aykroyd is a good guy, and you want to think that Walter Matthau is a good guy, but they're not. Initially, they're, they're, they're con men at heart. And all the doctors are self-absorbed. There's, there's really no good guy character. There's really no hero in this movie. They want, like I said, they want to make Dan Aykroyd the hero. He's not. Everybody is sort of a seedy... Ugh, of a per except for maybe Donna Dixon, and then at the end, you know, yeah, and then yeah. So really, I'm I'm wrong. There, no, there's no redeeming characters in this movie. As I said, they've landed. Donna Dixon is taking him to the car that's waiting for him, and Walter Matthau is on the streets. He is uh, he's begging for the rights of plants, and this is the first encounter of Dan Aykroyd and Walter Matthau. Listen to the high-frequency sounds they make when they're being cut. Kentucky Ben, I'd like you to meet us. Good Hendrix. He's a station manager and producer of your radio show. How do you do? Radio show. Welcome to L.A., Doctor. Where's your luggage? Dr. Ben has no luggage. We can go straight to the Bel Air. Excuse us. Doctor? Sir? Yes? You hear that noise? No. Those are ultra-high-frequency sounds made by Ivy weeping during a cross-pollination experimentation at UC Davis. Who speaks for horticulture? Doctor, you certainly Hey, look, ease up on me, pal. I'm just beginning to enjoy my jet lag. Okay, okay, I know you're busy. Only God can make a tree, but only you can spare one. My friend, I think at this juncture I should explain something to you. I was born in a lovely little Midwestern town, Webster City, Iowa. Maybe you know it. Lived on a quiet street. Beautiful little white house. Well, outside my bedroom window, there was a spectacular, huge, giant elm tree. One night, there was a fierce hailstorm. That tree was hit by lightning and fell. Took out half the house and killed my puppy, Dwayne. Ever since then, no plant has been a friend of mine. Now they're in the back of the limo. And Dan Aykroyd is just like a little kid. He starts playing with the sunroof. He starts playing with the windows. He turns on the radio, 
And at one point, there's a mini television in the back of the limo. And we turn it on and we see a commercial for condoms that features Chevy Chase. So Chevy Chase, Dan Aykroyd, and Donna Dixon are all in a scene together, which they were in together in Spies Like Us. So this is then, that was 1986, Spies Like Us. So this is a couple years later. So once again, we get Dan Aykroyd, Chevy Chase, and Donna Dixon all in one scene together. We check into the hotel. Dan Aykroyd explains that his luggage was stolen. That's why he has no clothes with him. So they start ordering him clothes. They get him everything he needs. Everybody leaves and there's a fire going in his hotel room and he, he burns his prison uniform. He's out of his shackles, he thinks. I'm home free. And now we cut to the lunch and Dan Aykroyd is in a suit now. Dan Aykroyd looks sharp. He looks really sharp in this suit. And he meets the lawyer and the lawyer's assistant, and they talk about money. Dan Aykroyd's like, I want $200,000 in cash up front. And they're like, we'll pay you $50,000. Dan Aykroyd says, nope, I'm going to walk away. And they're like, whoa, 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 calm down. They really need this guy. And Dan Aykroyd knows they really need him. He's using that against them to get the $200,000, which he's going to use later in the movie. Now we cut to London. Charles Grodin and Mary Gross have gone to London. There is going to be a psychologist and a psychiatrist convention in London. He's gone there to A, recuperate, and B, to attend the function as a tax write-off. And while they're in London, Charles Grodin confesses that he had an affair with one of his patients. And Mary Gross just screams and runs off, even though she's having an affair with the lawyer. I know why this scene is in here. It's going to come apparent later in the movie. But it really is... We could have tightened up the movie. We didn't need this scene. Uh, if, if you've listened to all my other podcasts, I'm always about tightening up movies. Tightening up. We don't. If we don't need something, let's get rid of it. We need something that advances the plot, not the, you know, not the runtime. Well, Charles Groen gets a call from his lawyer and says he wants $200,000, and Charles Groen agrees. And we cut back to the States, and Dan Aykroyd is about to do Charles Groen's radio show. He has a national radio show. And before he goes on, he confirms that he will get his $200,000 in cash, which is a big thing. And he goes on the radio, he starts talking to his patients, and he really presses the sexual angle with his patients on the radio. And even when he's trying to give, uh, this guy calls in and he talks about premature ejaculation. And even though he's talking about cars, well, Dan Aykroyd makes a car sound very sexual right here. Doctor, it just happened again. Oh, okay, Yuri, just just calm down now and, and relax. Let's try something here. Think about something that could not possibly arouse you. For instance, um, fixing the transmission in a 1961 Dodge Shiftomatic. That's what always works for me. I like to mentally put on my overalls, take my mechanic's palette, slide along the floor under the drive shaft, past the universal joint. Uh -huh. 
grab the joint on the way by and wiggle it back and forth, check it for play. Then get to the bell housing and take out your ratchet, unscrew all the bolts, and separate the bell housing from the rest of the apparatus. And there you can feel for splines and spread the planetary gears. Okay, Yuri, you are getting sexually excited as I sit here and talk about transmission repair. He leaves the radio station, and before he does, he tells everybody that if you need free consultation, come to my office. And while all this is happening, they're freaking out in the control room. Because during the interview, Dan Aykroyd is using words like asshole and fuck and penis and vagina and balls and asshole. This is on public radio. And they start freaking out. But then they realize that nobody's calling to complain. Everybody's calling to get advice from him. We see Dan Aykroyd outside of the radio station. And Donna Dixon says, you got a phone call while you're on the air. He didn't leave his name. But he says, I know where you got your pants. And earlier in the movie, when Walter Matthau and Dan Aykroyd met... Dan Aykroyd was still wearing his prison garb pants, and Walter Matthau recognizes him. Dan Aykroyd goes to the facility where Walter Matthau is being held. He springs him. He gives him 50 bucks. He says, have a nice life. Walter Matthau is like, nope. What I know is going to cost you a fortune. I know those were uh, prison pants that you were wearing. I know you're on the lamb. All I got to do is open my mouth and all this that you're trying to do is going to come crumbling down. We're partners. Dan Aykroyd, knowing that it is beat, fine. We're partners. And they go back to the hotel and Walter Matthau is about to take a handful of pills and Dan Aykroyd dumps the pills over the side into the water and there's these swans in the water and they start eating the pills. And then, inevitably, we see the scene where these swans are stoned from all the pills that they had just taken. Well, the next day, Dan Aykroyd and Walter Matthau go to the office, and there's a line around the office. All the people heard him on the radio say, come down for a free consultation, and I will cure what's ailing you. This gives Dan Aykroyd an idea. He gets buses ready and he takes everybody, he takes all the people there and he takes them to a ball game. He takes them to a L.A. Dodgers ball game. And during this ball game, he sings the national anthem. And then while all of his patients are in the stands, he sort of goes from patient to patient, talking to them, trying to get them to open up. And he does that on the bus ride there. Donna Dixon, every time you see Donna Dixon, she's sort of falling more and more for Dan Aykroyd with his offbeat way of trying to cure people. I said before, there are no redeeming characters in this movie. The closest one would be Donna Dixon. Uh, Donna Dixon does not recognize that Dan Aykroyd is a con man because she is a legitimate doctor who legitimately wants to help people. The lawyer and his assistant, after seeing the success of what happened at the ball game, they're talking about getting Dan Aykroyd a syndicated TV show. They're already thinking of dumping Charles Grodin. The few days Dan Aykroyd has been there, he's really impressed them. 
the lawyer thinks and the assistant thinks that this guy can go a lot further than Charles Grodin. Let's get him locked in and we'll just toss Charles Grodin aside. Next, we have another little throwaway scene where Dan Aykroyd is back on the air. And I don't think we really need it. It was just a rehash of the first radio scene. It's just a rehashing of scenes that we've seen to elongate the movie. Now we go back to England. And Mary Gross is just obsessed with finding out the patient that Charles Grodin had an affair with. And at that moment, the doctor that Dan Aykroyd is impersonating shows up in London. So now they're both in London. They're both there for that convention. We go into Charles Grodin's and Mary Gross's room, and Mary Gross confesses that she had an affair. And Charles Grodin doesn't believe her. He thinks she's just saying that to get back at him because he had an affair. And Charles Grodin admits, if I ever find out that you did have an affair, and it was with a friend of mine, I'd kill him. And Mary Gross takes back the confession, says that she was making it up. Now we cut to a party, a real ritzy, fancy party. And... Dan Aykroyd is there, and Walter Matthau. Walter Matthau is now going with Dan Aykroyd wherever he goes. There, and for some reason, Dan Aykroyd doesn't have to explain why this guy dressed in a priest outfit is following him around. I guess they just think because Dan Aykroyd is an eccentric psychologist that it would work. But he never has to explain what Walter Matthau was doing unless... They think he's a patient of his. It's just really weird that Walter Matthau was just hanging, you know, hanging next to Dan Aykroyd wherever he goes, and there's no explanation uh, given to why he's hanging out with them all this time. The lawyer and his assistant basically tell Dan Aykroyd, we want you, we don't want Charles Grodin. You know, you're the future, he's the past. The lawyer gives Dan Aykroyd the keys to his Maserati and the keys to his yacht. And he says, just go out and enjoy yourself. And we see Dan Aykroyd and Walter Matthau driving back to Dan Aykroyd's room. And it's the next morning and we hear this speech from Walter Matthau. What's wrong? have this rumbling in my gut and these terrible chest pains. Oh, you ate too much. It's not gas. It's trust. I'm not used to trusting anyone. It doesn't feel right. I had one of the hottest Church of the Gethsemane franchises in Texas. It netted about 1100 a month in donations, pamphlets, baptisms. And then she walked in. You're sitting on my covers. Long red hair, short red dress, Nadine. She said she played the organ, and she sure played mine. I trusted her, did everything she told me, including burning down my church and running off with her and the insurance money. Then I woke up alone on a vibrating bed. Nadine was gone for good. But she did leave me a couple of quarters to keep the bed going. That's what I got for trusting her over my own selfish instincts. All was a mistake. You see, that's what I like about you. You talk straight. It's 
hard not to trust you. You'll learn. We cut to Dan Aykroyd's office, and we find out that Charles Grodin is supposed to accept an award that night, and they want Dan Aykroyd to accept it in his place. It's a big gala. And Dan Aykroyd asks Donna Dixon to go with him. And she agrees. And right as this happens, two things happen. Dan Aykroyd leaves to do his radio show. And the secretary says, can you watch the desk while I go to lunch? And Donna Dixon says, fine. That's critical. Because what happens next? We cut back to England. And Charles Grodin... And the real doctor that Dan Aykroyd is impersonating, they meet. And Charles Grodin finds out that he's the doctor that should be taking over his practice. They can't explain why he is in England and why somebody with the exact same name who came from the exact same place is back in L.A. taking over his practice. So we go to Charles Grodin's room and... The real doctor is on the phone, and Charles Grodin is there, and Mary Gross walks in. Now, I'm going to try to explain this the best I can. It's very convoluted. There's a lot of stuff going on, and it happens in a very, very short time. Here's what happens. The real doctor calls L.A. and asks to speak to himself because he says, I'm the real doctor. Whoever there is not real. He's a fake. I'm the real guy. Charles Grodin is standing next to him listening to this saying, I'm going to kill my lawyer because the lawyer was the one who set this up. But not only did the lawyer get this guy, but the lawyer gave him $200,000 cash of his money. So Charles Grodin is angry, not really because his practice is falling apart, but because he's lost $200,000 to this fake. And while he's doing that, the doctor on the phone is getting more and more agitated because nobody believes who he is. I'm the real doctor. Whoever is there is fake. Now, Mary Gross walks in, sees these two arguing amongst themselves on the phone, and asks what's going on. Charles Groen says, I'm going to kill that lawyer of mine. Mary Gross thinks it's because he found out about the affair she was having with him. And she says, how did you find out? And, I, and Charles Groen said, I just found out now. And Mary Gross says, well, it was going to happen inevitably. And he's like, what the hell are you talking about? And she says, I had an affair with your lawyer. And now Charles Grodin is like, what? And Mary Gross is like, what? What are you talking about? And Charles Grodin says, my lawyer just gave $200,000 to a doctor who's fake. What are you talking about? And she says, uh, and he's like, you had an affair with my friend and my lawyer? And she's like, yes. And he's like, I'm going to kill him. That's what happens in about 45 seconds. I am totally out of breath now. I am out of shape. I'm out of shape to do a podcast. That's a bad, bad thing. As I said, while all this is transpiring, Donna Dixon was behind the desk and she took the call. So Donna Dixon now knows that Dan Aykroyd is not who he says he is. Now we cut to Dan Aykroyd. He goes back to his hotel room. He starts rummaging through his drawer. And while he's doing that, Walter Matthau slams the door on his hand. And he holds a ticket. And Walter Matthau is like, is this what you're looking for? Because behind everybody's back, Dan Aykroyd brought a, bought a ticket to Mexico. He's going to take the $200,000 in cash 
and fly down to Mexico and live there for the rest of his life. And Walter Matthau is extremely hurt. He thought that they were in this together. He thought they were partners in crime, honor amongst thieves, all that kind of deal. Walter Matthau just throws the ticket at Dan Aykroyd and leaves. After he leaves, Dan Aykroyd goes looking for him. He starts going to all the normal haunts, bars, stuff like that. He can't find, he can't find Walter Matthau. And while we're looking at this, Walter Matthau is, he's lying on a tombstone in a cemetery and he looks up and he sees the big Hollywood sign. And now we cut to Dan Aykroyd picking up Donna Dixon. He's ready for the evening. He's ready for the presentation. He's got a he's got a toupee. I was going to say toupee. He might wear a toupee. Dan Aykroyd is bald in the back now, but in that movie he had a full head of hair. He might have been going bald at the time. He might have been wearing a toupee. I'm not sure, but I didn't mean to say toupee. I meant to say tuxedo. He's wearing a tuxedo and Donna Dixon opens the door and she's in jeans and a sweatshirt. He's like, uh, what's going on? And she basically says, I know who you are. Well, she does. She, she basically says, I know who you aren't. And she goes, don't worry, I haven't told anybody because she did have feelings for him. So she hasn't ratted him out to anybody. Now, Dan Aykroyd has to go to this banquet and make this speech to get the $200,000. Now, while this is happening, I guess these things are happening simultaneously. The real doctor and Charles Grodin hop a plane from England back to California. Once they get back to L.A., they go to Charles Grodin's office and he grabs a gun out of his closet. He's really going to kill somebody. He's going he's gonna to kill whoever has his money. He's going to kill whoever slept with his wife. Now, the real doctor is in tow. I don't, know the, I don't know why he brought... I guess he brought the real doctor back to prove that the other doctor was a fake. But here's what happens. They get back to his office... The real doctor says, why don't we just call the police? Charles Grodin knocks him on the head and locks him in the closet. His thing from the beginning wasn't to straighten this thing out. His, his motive was revenge. Well, you don't need the other doctor there for revenge. In fact, you're just gumming things up, just taking another person along. If you're going to go back and you're going to shoot the lawyer and you're going to shoot Dan Aykroyd, you don't need the other guy there. Now, I know why he's it's for, you know, jokes and plot convenience and all that. But in reality, and like I said, this is just so far-fetched to begin with. But if this was in reality, it would just be a stupid thing to do. He knocks the real doctor on the head. He locks him in the closet. He leaves. The real doctor starts banging on the door. A security guard comes, lets him out. And the security guard says, I'm going to call the cops. And the real doctor is like, good. So at this point, he's thinking rationally. It's like, I want the cops here. And it's also convenient that he's lost his wallet, so he has no ID on him as well. It's all very contrived and all very convenient. He, doesn't have, he can't prove that he's this real doctor. Well, the real doctor gets tired of waiting for the police, knocks the gun out of the security guard's hand, and locks him in the closet, and he takes off. So now Charles Grodin and the real doctor are both heading to this banquet in cabs. We're back at the uh, banquet, 
And before Dan Aykroyd does his speech, the lawyer is there with $200,000 in cash. So Dan Aykroyd has his $200,000 and now he has to make his speech. So now he's up in front of all these psychologists. And this has got to be a, you know, they're commenting on, I guess, psychobabble and all that because Dan Aykroyd, who was a fake psychologist or psychiatrist, uh, is up there talking in front of these quote-unquote real psychologists and psychiatrists, and they are believing him. They are buying what he's saying. Psychiatrists, is this a con job? I mean, I don't... Just the fact that this guy who doesn't know, you know, who is an amateur in the field is fooling all these people who have done it for years. Anywho. While Dan Aykroyd is making the speech, Charles Grodin comes in and confronts the lawyer. Most honored with this award. And he would thank you for this honor. But Hello, Harvey. He is not here. George, you're supposed to be in London. Well, we were going to tour the countryside, but Vera decided she wanted to come back to fuck you again. Uh, you know, you're not feeling well. I'm Let's not talk about that right now. Let's talk about money. Money. You gave my money to the wrong man. No, George, no. That man. It's the perfect choice. The ratings have soared. shithead. That's not fair. George, if you go out there in this condition, everyone will know the kind of man you really are. You're right. I don't want that. Now. Dan Aykroyd finishes his speech and starts leaving with the money. While Dan Aykroyd is leaving... The real doctor shows up, says he needs to be in there, and they tackle him, and so he's acting like a crazy person. I am Dr. Burns! I am Dr. Burns! And while all this is happening, Dan Aykroyd just walks past him in a tuxedo, looks down, so it's all, you know, it's the reversal of, you know, I had the power, now you don't, now I have the power, and you don't. Once again, he has no ID, he can't... You know, he can't produce it to say that he is the, the real doctor, the guy's name, the, the, the real Dr. Burns. And while Dan Aykroyd is going to the airport, Charles Grodin and the lawyer, they go back to uh, Dan Aykroyd's room. That's where they head. And Dan Aykroyd makes it to the airport and he's on the plane and... There's a TV going, and we see a picture of Walter Matthau has crawled on top of the Hollywood sign. He's on the Y on the Hollywood sign. And he starts yelling to Dan Aykroyd, Let's see what you made me do? Yada, yada, yada. And Dan Aykroyd, he, I don't know if it's because, you know, Walter Matthau is a kindred spirit, but he... He puts the $200,000, which is in a briefcase, he puts that in a locker at the airport and he goes to save him. And I don't know why he's always, he's a con man with a heart of gold, I guess. We always, That was a big thing in the 80s, con man with a heart of gold, hooker with a heart of gold. There's no legitimate reason this guy should stop what he's doing and go save this guy. But he does. Charles Grodin and his lawyer, after they go to Dan Aykroyd's room, they go to Donna Dixon's house. He thinks that Donna Dixon is keeping him there. And while they're at Donna Dixon's house, the news story comes on about Walter Matthau. And now <clears throat> Dan Aykroyd 
is at the scene. Charles Grodin freaks out and he shoots the television set. And now Charles Grodin and his lawyer and the lawyer assistant who's been with him the whole time, now they all drive to the Hollywood sign. Donna Dixon stays at home. We have now Walter Matthau, Dan Aykroyd, Charles Grodin, the lawyer and the lawyer assistant, they're all at the Hollywood sign. Dan Aykroyd shows up. They still think he's this great doctor, and he crawls across this wire to get to Walter Matthau at the top of the Y on the Hollywood sign. And they talk. This is what they say. Thanks for thinking of this. What do you want? What do I want? What do you want? You're the one who was screaming all over local TV for me. I just wanted you to watch me jump. Bullshit, you wanted me here. Well, now I'm here. So let's do it. Great. Let's do it. Me first. We jump together. But before we go, there's something I gotta tell you. Well, hurry up. I haven't got all night. I was history, Becker. I had in my possession $200,000 in crisp, cold cash. I was rich. You take this key, go to the airport, get my 200000 and start a new life. And a helicopter lowers a ladder, and they both grab onto this ladder, and they lower them both to the ground. Dan McElroyd convinces the police to let Walter Matthau go. I told him to do this. It's all my fault yada, 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 and they let him go, and they arrest Dan Aykroyd. And at this time, after they arrest Dan Aykroyd, Charles Grodin flips out and starts shooting at his lawyer. So all the police converge on Charles Grodin, and they cuff him, and they drag him off to jail. We cut to an asylum in California, and... Dan Aykroyd's, the real doctor, Dan Aykroyd's doctor, is in a cell, and he gets his own medicine. He keeps saying, I'm not who you think I am. I'm Dr. Burns. And the guy outside goes, I hear you. At this point, once again, this is just convenience for laughs. At this point, they realize they have Dan Aykroyd. Dan Aykroyd is not who he says he is. Dan Aykroyd is in jail. So if Dan Aykroyd is not who he says he is, it's very possible that this guy is who he says he is. But they make no effort to try to figure this out. And I find it hard to believe that somebody, even if he's a doctor, his fingerprints are on file somewhere. Take his fingerprints, run it against the file, you're going to find out who he is. But it's for a joke. He's trapped in a cell. He's getting his own medicine. The next cell over is Charles Grodin. He's back into the mindset he was at the beginning of the movie. So our two chief antagonists, they're in the same asylum right next to each other. Dan Aykroyd is being taken from county jail and he's being taken to a maximum security. And while he's getting taken to the maximum security, the driver of the truck tells him about the rats and the shanking. 
Dan Aykroyd has been one step ahead of everybody throughout this entire movie. In fact, throughout this, this character has been one step ahead of, ahead of everybody practically for his entire life. And he thinks that this, now he's got to pay the piper. It's like he's at the end of his rope. He's going to have to go to jail. But as the truck is driving, transporting Dan Aykroyd, there's a car accident. And standing out front is Walter Matthau. And he says, there's a woman in that car. And they get out and they run. The driver gets out and the guard gets out and they run towards the, towards the car. And they leave the keys in the ignition? You've got a prisoner in the back of your car and you leave the keys in the ignition? Well, that's what they do. They leave the keys in the ignition and Walter Matthau and Donna Dixon, who is in a black wig, they drive away in the van. And they drive, you know, they drive the van to a motorcycle, which Walter Matthau has purchased. Walter Matthau is like, we got to go. And Dan Aykroyd's like, I don't want to go with you. I want to go with her. I want the woman. And Donna Dixon goes onto a bus. She's like, this is the end of the line. You know, she did let this, you know, she did break this con man out of jail, but he did do a good deed, you know, ambivalent. She's not a totally bad person. She's not a totally good person. She's, I guess she's like everybody else. She's just right on the line like a lot of us. She's not going to go the full length and go on the lam with him. She doesn't like him that much. And they don't know who she is. So she hops on a bus and Walter Matthau drives Dan Aykroyd off on the, you know, Dan Aykroyd's on the back of this motorcycle. Walter Matthau is driving it away. And he's like, where are we going? You know, Monte Carlo on a motorcycle? No, on the lawyer's yacht. And Walter Matthau produces the keys to the lawyer's lot, to the lawyer's yacht which was given to Dan Aykroyd. The final scene of the movie is, you know what? There's worse things than being crazy. Credits. And that's it. And that's the movie. And what did I think of the couch trip? It was a nothing movie. I think I laughed once. I liked Dan Aykroyd's performance, but I think he was doing a low-grade Bill Murray performance. I like Dan Aykroyd more when he's sort of the straight man. When he's the lead wacky guy, it doesn't work that much for me. When he's, I don't want to say second banana, but when, when Dan Aykroyd is playing the straight guy next to Chevy Chase or Bill Murray, he's still quite funny, but that's also a character which I believe is in more tune with him. When he's the lead and he's the wacky lead, it doesn't really click for me. This movie didn't really click for me. I didn't really, I didn't laugh. I liked, you know, it has a great cast. Dan Aykroyd, Walter Matthau, Charles Grodin, Donna Dixon. They all do great jobs. Walter Matthau is by far the best thing in this movie. And I've always liked Charles Grodin. He plays the same character that he usually plays in a movie like this. He starts off kind of sane and he's, eventually it's crazier and crazier throughout the movie. That's the character he plays in this. It's good performances. It's just not a good movie. I would say, I mean, once if you're a Dan Aykroyd fan, check it out. But if you're looking for something that's really, really going to engage you and really, really going to engross you and make you laugh, this ain't the movie for you. And that's it. 
This has been another episode of the Dan Aykroyd Podcast. I know it's been a while since I put one out, but I've been up north. I've been visiting my dad. I've been doing shows. Uh, but I've got this one out to you now, and I hope you enjoy it. And please, tune in next time. To support this podcast, please go to www.patreon.com slash scottwhite and give what you're able. If you're listening on iTunes, please give a review. That should help people find this podcast. And no matter what services you use to listen, please leave feedback. We always want to improve. Thank you for listening to the Dan Aykroyd Podcast. Crazy. I'm crazy for feeling.